For months, I have waited, this is true. For months, I've waited to see a protest sign that reads, atheists believe that black lives matter. Are we white humanists looking at news stories and thinking, oh, those poor believing savages, those white and black ones, haven't we seen both victims of police brutality and murder as well as the police uh, appealing to God, prayer, things of that sort? And do we hold them in disdain or do we look uh, to them as folks worthy of our attention? What are we doing? For instance, couldn't the AHA organize a group of humanists to march alongside community folks protesting that black lives matter? I'm serious. It's not a rhetorical point. I'm serious. Shouldn't we be planning to do this? Not simply because there are black atheists and so we should care, but because humanism at its best is for human life flourishing for all people, believers and non-believers alike. When will black lives matter as much as atheist lives? All of us, I'm guessing, and I'm including myself, could do more to put our ideological freedom to work in the service of those who face the brunt of a social world where God has really only ever been a proxy for power. By this token, black lives are atheist lives. But many humanists still fight this point. If you think I'm simply constructing a straw man or if this panel is uh, fighting windmills, it's worth noting that on November 24th, 2014, the AHA posted a meme on their Facebook page in support of Black Lives Matter. It got nearly 5,000 shares and 12,000 likes, which is great, of course. But the highest rated comment underneath it is this. I'm quoting directly. I'll leave it for you guys to do the research to figure out who said this. I'm fully a humanist and will always fight for equal rights and justice, but putting Michael Brown's name on this meme is divisive and reactionary. As the evidence comes out, we are seeing that he committed several serious crimes. It cheapens our movement to look at this as a non-gray issue, end quote. Nearly 500 liked the comment, and many others co other comments also worked hard to disassociate humanism from Black Lives Matter usually following some sort of character assassination, that is, Brown was a thug, they deserve it, why don't you just follow the directions of the police, etc. Or questioning whether it is the place of humanists to quote, another quote, perpetuate a race war. Really? Like the war against black people that's been waged for 400 years? That race war? Okay. As a humanist, these perspectives are embarrassing. And as a white person, I am ashamed of them. And so should every white person in this room. Are we more concerned for numbers in terms of humanism than we are with black lives? That's great to hear. Let's act on that. Here's Wallace again. The only thing that's capital T true is that you get to decide how you're going to try and see it. You get to consciously decide what has meaning and what doesn't. You get to decide what to worship. There is actually no such thing as atheism. There is no such thing as not worshiping. Everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. As humanists, too many of us seem preoccupied with fighting against the God idea. When at the end of the day, in a multiverse where there is no God, there's no such thing as an atheist or a theist either. There are only people who make meaning based on what they choose to worship. 
What will we worship, humanists, free thinkers, today as we come to terms with the continued significance of race in America? Will we worship a certain blind path where the water of whiteness slowly suffocates us all as it loses oxygen? Or will we worship at the altar of humanity, using our relative freedom to not wallow in selfish indifference, but for the sake of imagining new, uncertain possibilities of social life where black lives matter more than a God that doesn't exist anyway? Thank you. This is Profane Faith. He said, and there shall be signs in the sun and in the moon and in the stars and upon the earth distress of nations. I think she's a liar and I think she deserves mockery. It was something about when I put this hat on, it made me feel like Superman. Black lives are very important, white lives are very important, and to me, all lives are very important. Very, very important. Damn! This is Profane Faith, a podcast that engages faith on the margins. Faith that has been labeled profane, nonconformist, and or out there. We'll be exploring the intersections of the sacred, secular, and profane to find God. I'm your host, your boy, Daniel White Hodge. Hey, good people. How you doing out there in podcast land? Welcome back to Profane Faith. This is your boy, Dan White Hodge, in it and to win it. Another week here hanging out in the lab. Uh, man, if you could see, I have my little toy poodle with me right now. Chester, if you if this, if this was a, a video, you'd see him in my lap. He's hanging out with me along with my little Karen Terrier off to my right. It's a great time this afternoon here in Chicago. If you're listening to this in real time or even within the next couple weeks or so, whatever, uh, it's snowing here, man. We're finally getting some winter. Um, yeah, you know, we've had some some pretty mild wet, well, mild, relatively speaking, right? Um, for Chicago, mild. If I was in Cali, I'd, I'd be cold as all get out. But, you know, it's been in the mid to upper 40s. And one day we actually reached uh, close to 60. It was like 57, which is just crazy to me just to see the amount of nuts going on in the weather. It's, uh, it's a little crazy. It's a little crazy. So I'm... Uh, yeah, you know, I think uh, climate change is interesting. And you know what? You know what gets me is I think when I think about the next decade, right? Um, if you know me, you know I'm into like um, astrophysics and quantum theory and whatnot. I think it's interesting just to see at this day and age, you know, just how far we've advanced technologically, how much AI has come into our own reality, right? Think about Siri, Alexa. Um, you know, Google, I mean, you know, being able to talk to things rather than type. Um, I just wonder what the next decade is going to bring. I mean, here we are, 2019, so, you know, next year will be 2020. You know, and so in 20 by 2030, you know, um, most people are saying, well, I think the James Webb telescope goes up, which uh, is going to be even better than the, um, oh, what's that telescope? The, um, the one that's up there now. You know which one I'm talking about? You don't know which one I'm talking about. You know which one I'm talking about? Oh, man, it's the... Went up in 2008, 2007. Ah, it's the one finding all those new exoplanets. And I should know this, but I don't right now. Well, the name is escaping me. <laughs> and some of you are probably yelling at your speakers right now saying it's dead. But I, I'm, I'm forgetting it. Uh, it's named after an astronomer. Uh, Kepler. There we go. The Kepler telescope. Um, using this kind of Doppler way of finding exoplanets and stuff. It's actually the, the Webb, the James Webb Telescope is actually going to be even better. It's going to be able to, like, actually tell exoplanets' atmosphere and if there is, like, carbon and 
uh, oxygen and to see if there's actual life forms uh, on there, which is crazy. Um, so it'd be interesting the next 10 years what that brings. You know, uh, they're wanting to put people on Mars uh, and within the next decade as well. So I always wondered, like, what does that mean given the amount of change that the planet is going through? Um, I love the movie Interstellar, and I, I, I well, even let's just take it even back from that. Inter, not even Interstellar. I've talked about that movie, but I like Wally. Have y'all seen Wally before? I, I like Wally. Wally was uh, one of my daughter's favorite movies, and I actually still like it um, for a lot of reasons. One, the fact that it, there's a lot of visuals that you can see. You don't necessarily need a script to. Uh, to drive the movie, it's the story, um, and so it's the story of Wally uh, wanting to connect. Uh, you know, his friend's a little roach, uh, and uh, you know, and he's uh, you know he finds this life, and then you know all of a sudden Eve shows up, and you know he falls in love. So he, like he's able to express emotion um, and able to like you know so like this uh, and, and there's like this whole like story, but the, one of the sub stories is. What the hell happened to all the people on the earth? <laughs> right? Even the song sung by Peter Gabriel, um, you know, it's like we left the earth, you know, to, to, to make home, to set sail for the sky, right? Um, I think I find it interesting. I asked myself that question the first time I saw Wally. I was like, what happened to the people? And what was the process of leaving the earth? Who got to leave? Right? Because they left as a result of... Uh, you know, the world becoming uh, too polluted. There was so much trash. Uh, nothing green was growing anymore. The oceans dried up. Uh, there were these huge planetary uh, dust storms. And uh, it almost, you know, and, and I'm, I'm imagining the, the oxygen levels were really bad and people couldn't probably live there. And so they left, uh, left the planet. And it had been, I don't know, several hundred years now that they've been out in space, living in space, living out uh, beyond the planet. And, um, you know, Eve is able to find a, a, a tree. And I'm giving away the whole story if you haven't seen it. But anyways, that's kind of the plot. And, and anyways, long story short, you know, the folks come back at the end of the movie and all this stuff. And, of course, they're overweight because technology has taken it's, – it's essentially done the work for them. And so they don't have to do anything. All they have to do is just wake up. And now they get the same, like, perks, right? It's like, uh, you know, they get their haircuts, they get bathed. But everything, they sit in these chairs, and they've been sitting in those chairs, right? The evolutionary process of, of humanity is, is evolutionized to, to the point that they are so overweight they can barely even walk. Um, I have a hard time believing at the end of the movie when they do start walking because I'm like, man, if you got 800 years of humans not walking, something's going to be giving and as genes develop, right? Because eventually the genes and the thing will be like, oh, you don't need your legs? Okay. We'll just make the bones less thinner or whatever, right? And so I, I, I wonder about that. Um, I think in the lineup there was only one African-American and like two Asian or maybe one Asian um, captains, right? There were all these captains, right? Most of them were white men. I think there was one woman. <laughs> um, so again, I think about those things when I watch movies, when I watch kids' movies, um, because, it, you know, those things make a lot, all this intersection of, of, of the environment, of what's happening in, you know, our country, what's happening in other countries as well, um, I think has a significant and profound impact on what the future looks like. Uh, I, 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 
I want to believe that, oh, we can say if we just, you know, our feature is to save the children, teach them well and let them make their way. Right. You know, you know that song. Um, you know, it's a pile of crap. <laughs> it really is, man. Um, it, you know, it is. I mean, it is. It's a big pile of bullshit because. The reality of this is that some kids don't grow up in that. And that's, again, going back to Wally. It's like, what happened to those who couldn't afford to get on those ships? They just died. And I'm sure it was a horrific death because I'm sure the people, as we know, resources get low. Uh, you're facing extinction, you know, so, you know, everybody's fighting over a little crumb of food. Um, right? I think we got entire television series off of that, right? You got The Walking Dead, Fear of the Walking Dead. I mean, the list goes on of, 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 of what happens when... You know, apocalyptic. This this kind of eschaton settles in 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 humanity, and and Western civilization has has left the building. Oh man! So uh, I'm always curious about that. You know, um, you know, uh, and on true transparency, you know, I am starting to take up prepping. Uh, if you don't know what prepping is, it's folks who like you know prep for basically calamity the end of the world if the grid goes down uh i think about these things simply because there is no evidence at least as a black man that the government the federal agencies would do anything uh to help me or people that look like me if there were some major catastrophe that uh that exists and i think part of it is the thin veil of religion the thin veil of politics the thin veil that you know, somebody's in charge, uh, parts of what keeps humanity together, parts of what keeps society as we know it in the West running. Uh, but I do think that's a thin veil, uh, which is why I, I believe, uh, you know, folks in the GOP and, and, and Democrats for that matter. I mean, it's all kind of crazy mess going on now. The Democrats, Democrats have been a group of white progressives, right? Or white moderates uh, that have wanted to feel good about them doing great for black people and Mexican people and Latinx people. Um, but now, right, we've all seen kind of some of the videos and we've seen uh, uh, um, uh, Sister Cortez, Cortez, I believe that's her last name, um, who's up in there, you know, just fighting all kind of racism, right? Um, and we know that from people of color, people uh, who are in these spaces that were once occupied by whites and now all of a sudden the shoe's on the other foot and, you know, it, it just it turns crazy. But you see people, you know, clamoring to what little they think it should be. Um, so, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I I, uh, I do. I think about those things, and so uh, I figured, you know, what what a better what's a better place to talk about those things than here on Profane Faith? Because, um, you know, I, I think about this is the first time in humanity, right? We've, you know, had so dependence, uh, so much dependence on electronics. More and more things are turning to uh, computers. More and more things are turning to. Um, uh, you know, being digitized and whatnot. What happens when those things? don't when they break uh the other day i had to go fix my wife's phone and i you know i had to go she's got an iphone so when i went to the apple store and so i took her phone she took my phone um and i remember going in and saying oh, okay yeah it's gonna be this much money okay we'll fix it okay you gotta keep the phone for two hours right two hours and i walked out the store thinking you know what i didn't make a plan with emily I didn't make a plan to meet up anywhere. And so I'm like, 
digging, and I'm like, huh, what should I do? I, so I went back into the, the Apple store and tried to, like, send her a message via, um, you know, iTunes or something like that. But then, you know, two-factor identification, I couldn't do that. I was like, ah, crap. <laughs> so for a while, I'm just sitting there thinking, huh. But I'm like, okay, I'm not young. In fact, I just turned 45. It was my birthday, you know, was here back here in January. So I'm in my mid-40s officially, um, at least at the recording of this, the coming out of this podcast. Um, and, I, you know, I grew up in an era where you had to make plans or, you know, there was no cell phone or the cell phone you had was tied to your car or, you know, you wouldn't want to use it. It was just for looks because it was like $2 a minute. So I was like, wow, I have become reliant on technology i have become so caught up with this that now that it's gone i didn't realize how much of a crutch it was you see what i'm saying and again going back to wally that's why i think wally is so phenomenal uh because it, it touches on that and it touches on you know like when you when everything else is taken care of for you I mean you don't have to do anything right it's just like you just depend on your your shows or you depend on what's coming on next or the weather being always the same or you know the internet working or just being able to have access to to to, to certain materials y'all that stuff it's uh it's a little concerning sometimes a little concerning at least for me it's a little concerning because I look at it in, in, in such a way that, you know, again, what if those things are not there? What if I can't access digitally uh, my ID or you can't scan something that's supposed to be scanned or the scanner has an, an error in it? You know, all those things. Yes, joy, 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 happy joy. <laughs> um, but, you know, that's that. Those are some of the things that I that I'm thinking about. Uh, as I as I get older, I didn't think about it, you know, probably even ten years ago. I know I, well, I know I didn't. So here we are, and we, you know, it's uh, and I think you know the Trump presidency has uh, pushed a lot of these things even you know closer and further, especially with the mind of somebody like a Steve Bannon, which I do believe is still uh, influencing you know certain decisions that are that are being had uh, given. Bannon's ideology and kind of his creed about what, how he felt society. And this is again, this is not me making. I'm not. You, know, you do the research yourself. Go on to YouTube and look up some of the documentaries that uh, Bannon has made. You know, he's a filmmaker, right? He's he. You know, he was in Hollywood. I mean, people knew him as a, as a funder. I mean, he funded. He's probably worked on the Seinfeld show. I mean, for crying out loud. So. You know, this guy is, you know, he's connected. He was, he, 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 he knows exactly, you know, what, what, what to push and how to push it. Right. And so part of his ideology and, and, and fundamental belief is that white people uh, run the world and that they know best. And that honestly, it's just too much hard work for cross-culturalism, interculturalism. Let's just, you know, tank everything and start over with the white persons on top. And we can have a whole generation raised on that history. This is his stuff. <laughs> this is his stuff. So I think about that as somebody who advised uh, Trump, who openly said once he left, he said, "Now I know how things really work, and I have, and I'm that much, I'm that much more connected than I was um, b b prior to me getting on, uh, you know, on Trump's team." Crazy stuff, y'all. Crazy stuff. And again, I think the passivity of religion um, is easy to be like, "Oh well, God's got it." Sure. I think that's in the end, but what's in the meantime? Okay, so those are some of the questions I ask, you know? <laughs> 
Which brings me to my guest for this week. Oh, y'all, this is going to be a treat. So get out your notepads. Brother Christopher Driscoll, Dr. Dr. Chris Driscoll. You heard him at the beginning of the podcast. Um, his brother is an assistant professor of religion, American and African study, Africana studies out at Lehigh University in Bethlehem, Pennsylvania, uh, where he studies race, religion and culture hysterical and contemporary white U.S. and European religious, philosophical, and theological thought and traditions, particularly existentialisms and humanisms, along with hip-hop culture. So Dr. Driscoll's interdisciplinary work combines social, critical, philosophical, and hermeneutical theories and methods within the academic study of religion. He's lectured uh, extensively across the U.S. and, and Europe, uh, he's also the author of White Lies, Race, and Uncertainty in the Twilight of American Religion. Excellent read. That came out uh, in 2015 uh, with Rutledge. I'll put a link in the show notes. Uh, then he has a co-authored book with the great Dr. Monica Miller, R. Miller, uh, Method as Identity, uh, Manufacturing, oh, excuse me, yeah, Method as Identity, Manufacturing Distance in the Academic Study of Religion. That just came out. Rowan Littlefield, uh, Lexington Books. 2019. Uh, that's a book we'll be, we'll be highlighting as well in this conversation coming up. And he's co-editor, along with Monica R. Miller and, and Dr. Anthony Penn, who I've had on the show, of the upcoming Kendrick Lamar and the Making of Black Meaning. That's under contract with Rutledge. Um, I actually have a chapter in that looking at Kendrick Lamar, looking at some of uh, the stuff that Kendrick Lamar has contributed. Dr. Driscoll and I, of course, met at AAR. Um, American Academy of Religion, if you don't know what that is. And uh, I have just, uh, he's brilliant, 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 brilliant. He's sharp. Um, he comes from a Christian background. I won't, I won't share the entire, his entire history because he's going to break down some pretty deep things here uh, as it relates to just his life and how he grew up uh, being a white male. Uh, him and uh, Monica Miller are married. Uh, Monica Miller, if you don't know her, she is African-American. So he's in an inter-ethnic relationship. Um, and just a brilliant mind, brilliant mind. Uh, he's going to talk a little bit about his own spiritual and faith beliefs and the lack thereof, or not even lack thereof, but just, you know, he's uh, claiming atheism and humanism as well. So um, it's 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 a great conversation. These are exactly the part of the, some of the conversations that I had wanted to have, um, and I'm I'm just thankful that there's a space for that here on Profane Faith. So, um, before I get to Chris, just a just a heads up coming up. If you haven't seen the docu series um, on Lifetime called Surviving R. Kelly, uh, I actually have a three part special coming up on that and. Bigger than R. Kelly, I'm also going to be looking at, you know, just what does it really, uh, what does it really mean when you think about the, the the expanse and how deep misogyny goes, how deep sexism goes, how deep hypermasculinity goes, how deep the abuse of women, particularly black women, goes in this country. Um, so I'm going to have three guests. Uh, um, uh, we're I'm wrapping up interviews now. And so I'm hoping to have that out next week, the first part. And uh, like I said, it'll be a three-part series, you know, going in on the bigger, you know, conversation around what R. Kelly represents uh, in our community. Uh, not just him having, you know, sex and, and, and the rape of young girls, but also what does it mean the people who were around him who enabled that? Woo! Yeah! Some, some deep stuff coming down the pipe. This profane faith, y'all. We got to go in. So, 
That being said, keep your eyes and ears open for that. That'll be coming up. Without any further ado, here is Brother Chris and I breaking down some good conversation. That shit is insane. That's some complicated shit. Woo, brother. I was like, wow. So it's insidious. Very. It is. It is. Very. That's where uh, I'm not looking at R. Kelly, but my research right now is trying to take seriously masculinity in a way that I haven't before. Like really internalized it. And that shit, that shit is deep. Yes, it is. Yes, it is. Abuse. I mean, right. like that's actually what I'm studying. Like, uh, like mechanisms of abusive behavior. Mm. There are a lot of uh, there are a lot of R. Kelly's. That's right, <laughs> right, right. He, he needs to be taken down for sure. Right. Um, but it uh, would be we'd be remiss if we didn't like understand him. Uh, kind of like Trump, like, right. yeah, they're a person in power that's being explicitly abusive, but they're also a symptom of broader forces. So. Yes, yes, mm-hmm. yes, absolutely, man. Well, that's a good note to start on. Well, Dr. Chris Driscoll, man, thank you for coming on the show. Thanks for the invitation. Sorry it's taken a little while, but i um, happy to be here with you now. Oh, brother, man, you uh, you have been, uh, you and your wife, uh, Monica Miller, have been an inspiration for me and really a strong support system, more than you probably know, um, over the last eight years, man. So uh, I have appreciated your insights, your rigor, your critique and analysis, man. And so I, it's... Uh, Yes, it's like uh, it's just it's a huge thank you for just what you've done and not just for me, but just for the discipline as well. Oh, well, thank you. That means a lot coming from uh, someone of your stature. Actually, it's been a pleasure to uh, work with you over these years and to get to know you. You're uh, uh, one of our uh, closest interlocutors and uh, creative uh, uh colleagues and so um yeah it's exciting what we've done with hip-hop in the aar is really exciting and none of that would have been possible without you so um yeah it's nice to be here nice to um it feels kind of like a family affair of sorts so i hear that <laughs> man well brother um and, and i appreciate that man that that does mean a lot man i am curious there's so many things so many conversations that we've had over the years in fact i was just looking back over my notes and i was like man i've got notes upon notes of just conversations we've had and not necessarily even in main sessions it's like i they'll just be on the you know on the cuts at some reception party man um but let me start here what how have you gotten from birth to now? <laughs> what's what's the, happened in that interim? That is a that's a big question. Yes, sir. Uh, but it it dovetails fairly well with um, the work that I'm doing right now, which I can talk a little bit about. Please, uh, but it also connects to kind of, it's kind of like the prolegomena to my first book, White Lives, as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, where in in that book, I I argue that there's a causal, there's a really uh, innate connection between the construction of whiteness and the construction of theism. Mm. And 
for a, a white person to believe in God puts us uh, necessarily in the position of uh, being uh, bereft of moral, our moral responsibility to the world. In other words, uh, believing in God for the white person is has become a bad idea. It's it's not, it's a, a poria to use the philosophical language. It's not possible. Um, how I got there, though, is probably the more fascinating and probably tragic kind of position. And I'm trying to take stock of all of that right now. What, so what I do is study race, religion, and culture. I am a white guy from the South, uh, born and raised, and I, was, I grew up in uh, the church. It was a mainline church, uh, Disciples of Christ, church if uh, listeners know the denomination but uh, okay. all right at the same time it was in uh the the deep south the bible belt if uh were to use that term so it was a theologically progressive and liberal space but it was a um socially very conservative space there was only one black person who uh, was, by my estimation, allowed in the church. I, I say that somewhat facetiously, but she was the only one who, uh, she was a local newscaster, in fact. She was the only one who would uh, attend the church, and I was always curious about that. Mm-hmm. And as I got older, I realized that it probably had something to do with the way that, uh, as a young child, the clan would mm. uh, would hold uh, protests on the street corner that was adjacent to the church. This wasn't a protest of the church, and it, it also wasn't affiliated with the church, mm-hmm. but it was kind of a uh, common central location in the town that they felt was a safe enough space for them to um, do their— protesting or whatever they were doing. I don't remember what. Um, but that, that's, that's a, a tiny snapshot of the context. But, uh, and that's what was happening at the level of the church and the community. But what was happening inside my own home is I was dealing with the effects of uh, alcoholism. Mm. And this was not me drinking as a six-year-old, of course. <laughs> this was me dealing with the effects of a father who was a fairly severe alcoholic. Wow. He did not, he didn't uh, get violent when he um, drank, but it, it led to lots of uh, issues surrounding neglect and abandonment. Mm-hmm. Stuff, stuff, this is the language I have now to describe it, but it, to make a long story short, it led all of us in the household, that is, my mom, my sister, and I, to uh, at different times find avenues of support, like alternative options for healthy relationships and growth and stuff like that, that weren't being provided adequately uh, enough by my father. Mm. And I say healthy and we could talk about those, but probably more to the point of how I arrive at this position where I am is that uh, not all of the 
choices that folks in my household were making proved to be healthy responses to this already unhealthy situation. Mm. And for me, I grew up seeing my mom uh, exert a, a considerable amount of time and energy in the church. It, the church was her escape. It was her way of getting away from this relatively toxic home environment. Mm. And so as a, as I don't know, like age six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, 10, 11, up until my like thorough teenage or high school years, I would go with her. I was always going with her. And um, it was kind of like life. It was what we did. We were church people. And uh, to this day, my mom, as well as my sister, uh, are pastors of uh, two different churches. Okay. So, so church uh, is a family business for them. And uh, religion has become kind of like my family business. Well, in any event, um, the the significance of how I arrive at my position is that in all of this church work, it there are how do it? I'm trying to. All good, describe man. something that's um, break it down. Difficult, yeah. Emotionally, it's not. It's not difficult to understand. Yeah, that it's just the first time that I'm uh, talking about it publicly. No, I got you, man. Brad, got take your and, time, brother. Uh, I'm happy to share it with the viewers, with with the listeners, because uh, it matters, and it matters for my work that I'm doing now. But it it matters in general. We started this conversation uh, with a nod to R. Kelly. Well, to make this long story short, the church, which had been this kind of uh, uh, psychical safe haven for my mom, became a place mm. of trauma for me mm. as a child. Mm. How I so? Was, I was abused by folks who we knew through the church. Mm. So that that that's ugly enough, and I'll, I'll save it for another occasion to get into the nitty-gritty of that. But th that ugliness, in both in hindsight, as a scholar looking at these things, but also then, I remember, like, I could kind of situate that ugliness. Mm -hmm. I, could, I could understand it as the, if you're, if you're Christian, as the evil that it is, or if you're, uh, I don't know, an existentialist uh like myself, although those aren't mutually exclusive, uh, it's just like part of the ugliness of the human experience, whatever. I could get that. But what I couldn't understand was the way that the church, the, the church leadership, all came to an awareness of what had happened. And everyone was in agreement about what had happened. But the perpetrator was still allowed to exist in the space of the church. Mm. Mm. That that single issue has been the seed, the mustard seed, if you will, that has uh, turned into the, all of my intellectual ideas surrounding what religion is, and in particular, how it relates to race. Over the years, I increasingly started recognizing the moral hypocrisy that I just described in uh in terms of social identity, 
I started to connect the dots between who it was that was allowing these sorts of behaviors to exist and to happen and who was not there in the space who might uh, offer a, uh, uh, a response that I would think was more healthy. Yeah. So I would go to church and I'd hear all of this stuff and I would believe it took my my atheism is is a complicated thing, but it, it was a journey. And I mean, up until. 22 or so, I was a believer in God and, and a follower of Christ and things like that. Yeah. And, um, I would go to church and and hear stories that mattered to me. They did. Um, but there was something missing. And as soon as I would leave church, I would get in my car by this point and I would uh, put in a CD and the CD would be uh, this is a very real example. It would be most often at the time UGK. Okay. Yeah. Or it would be uh, Eight Ball and MJG. Okay. All right. The two. If, for listeners, if you guys don't know who those uh, groups are, you should go check them out. Go dig in the crates, so to speak. There you go. Uh, but anyway, I I was recognizing then that if. MJG was inside, or or Bun B, part of UGK, someone who I've gotten to work with now. Mm, uh, mm. It, like if Bun B had been in that space of the church, he wouldn't have put up with the bullshit that I had to endure as a child, the hypocrisy. He may have still had to, it, he may have still ended up a victim of that arrangement in some way, shape, or form, but he wouldn't have gone down without swinging. Mm. And that was what. Uh, really motivated the other side of my interest. So here I was in this white church, and I had deep, 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 uh, important uh, connections to that church. I'm, I'm describing the negative ones, but church was life. It was bigger than just a good or bad thing. Yeah, yeah. It was. And at the same time, though, I'm having this constant response to all of my existential yearnings, uh, met for me in the, in the form of hip-hop. Rappers were telling me things about myself and about the world that the church was not. It was telling me things that I was able to see, but it was helping me to articulate, the, as my advisor Anthony Penn would say, the, the like grittiness of life. And, hmm. and so from a very early age, I had this traumatic experience occur in the church, and simultaneously, I, I wasn't allowed to leave that space. I also, though, wasn't um, uh, well. I wasn't allowed to leave that space, but I also had this other aspect of my life that would come to mean more to me than I would have realized it meant at the time. And that is hip hop, hip hop culture. Okay, and so. But hip hop is really how I ended up getting involved in critique of uh, whiteness and um, race, race based discourses in general. Uh, I believed rappers before I believed pastors. Mm. That's that'll preach right there, man. And I, and I still do. I don't believe pastors in mm. general. I believe pastors when they're quoting rappers. But I don't I don't so much buy into uh, the what happens in most uh, 
church pulpits today. I won't say all. There are exceptions. Um, but uh, so, yeah, so that I'll, I'll stop there. Uh, that was, a, I guess, a lot. But um, <laughs> no, nah, brother, that, that was that's how I arrive at where I am uh, today. Man, I mean, this is this is powerful. I mean, I think what strikes me is that and this is what I appreciate about you and Monica is that, you know, we I think a lot of times with with scholarship, you know, and especially, you know, when we get the stage and we got books and all these things like that, it's easy just to look at that one event without looking at the roots of what brought us to that. You know, um, I speak a lot on, you know, what, what is, what brought me to, you know, to even want to even, you know, engage, like you said, hip hop, I mean, you know, and then how does that rooted in our own journey? I mean, and that, I think that's important and that's something that often gets overlooked um, in narratives, particularly in, in, in scholarly environments and whatnot, man. And, 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 and I think in religious environments, conversely, I think that it, it, it gets numbed down or some totaled into, right. You went through all that bad stuff, but God has made it better. And, you know, Jesus is the answer for everything. And so, yay, hallelujah, you're better now. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Right. And yeah, so, yeah. That redemptive suffering model, uh, that's so prevalent in the church. I just can't get with, right. I can't. Like the the notion that somehow my abuse and my trauma has made me a better person is absolutely ridiculous. In in that sort of notion, in my first book, I call it a white lie. No, the reality for me is that had I not been abused, my first book would be even better and even smarter than it is now. Mm. Mm. I'm I'm saying that with added effect. I don't I don't necessarily mean that literally, but but I kind of do. Our trauma does not make us better people. Our trauma makes us lesser people. Mm. It makes us less complete. I don't mean like we need to work towards this kind of ubermensch uh, mode of existence where we're constantly striving to be bigger and better than the, our former selves. What I mean is it it makes us philosophically directed. The ver- the the notion that somehow what we endure causes us uh, a kind of uh, uh, strength is absurd. Now, is there another way to respond to our uh, trauma is a different question. But I, I do know that at the very least, uh, these redemptive suffering uh, models of, I don't know, like uh, uh, of understanding uh, are not are not helpful and uh, from what I can gather, they're not psychologically helpful. Yeah. Or healthy. Yes. Well, I mean, it's kind of even what uh, Penn and others have talked about. It's like, you know, the problem with theodicy, right? I mean, it's like, you know, you get these these notions that somehow, oh, I'm better in the struggle or this and this and that, or really becomes a coping mechanism too, right? It's like it becomes a, a way for people to... I mean, I don't know, as I as I look at it, like, you know, how do we understand evil? How do we understand heinous works? I mean, I think about, you know, again, going back to R. Kelly, I mean, I think about, you know, I can't relate as a man, you know, a, a young woman being taken by this this uber pop star, you know, and it's like at, woman after woman keeps talking about how oh, he was a genius and man, I was just taken by that, you know, and so, so the celebrityism of that and then to be abused by that, to think that that somehow is... I don't know. I mean, and I think I know that the odyssey around that is, is that, oh, well, you know, God was 
was, uh, you know, was in that and that somehow God, you know, allowed that to make the person stronger, right? I mean, that's kind of the sum total narrative, right, that comes out of that. But I, I, I have a problem with that as well. I mean, because I'm just like, then, then, then who is God? I mean, I guess that's a broader question of that. I mean, let me ask you this. When then, so you talk about atheism, and you say up until about 22, I mean, what was the what was the 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 I don't want to say the point, but I, what was the 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 error, the situation that you started saying, man, I don't I don't know about this God thing, man. Well, the uh, that is a good question, and it the story of my turn to atheism was really an intellectual. Um, set of minor decisions along the way. I, I got kind of like organized set of syllogisms that just kept getting like uh, proven illogical over and over again. And intellectually speaking, the 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 person who's probably been most convincing, as far as folks I've read, is uh, David Hume. I really okay. appreciate the work of David Hume. Okay. Uh, and, and yet, yet I, I'm forced to. This is something that uh, I try to cultivate in my work that I hope sets me a bit apart from many of my colleagues, is that David Hume was also a blatant, raging, racist asshole. Mm. So, so in my work, I'm not just simply trying to reteach people something that's already been ta taught in the way of David Hume's uh, work, his empiricism. That's, that's easy enough to do. I want to have a conversation about both sides of that. Like, how is it that Hume is so compelling to me? Uh, and then how is it that Hume is so compelling to me? <laughs> right? Right. right right it's really not a different issue it's the same issue and so my my atheism comes by way of my increasing critique of whiteness i saw a causal connection or i saw this as i noted earlier i saw this kind of intrinsic relationship between whiteness and theism and that meant that for me increasingly over time not a very long time but maybe the span of I don't know, 18 months or so, I just realized that the idea of God was a harmful idea and that I ought to uh, abandon it. Recently, and in some of my, my more, uh, some of the work that I'm actively writing right now, that I was writing this morning, I'll be writing more of it over the next uh, months, is I, I'm starting to shift back away from atheism proper. Not for moral reasons, although my atheism has always been what uh, we can, what some folks would call protest atheism. I don't, I, I, I'm epistemologically agnostic, and I always have been. Okay. It's not that I can prove that God doesn't exist. No one can prove that God exists or not. And, and that's, it's kind of axiomatic, and anyone who says otherwise is lying, whether they're doing it from a Christian or a believer-based standpoint or an atheistic standpoint. Come on. Both, both of those hardline positions are, are simply lying to you. Uh, so I'm epistemologically, as far as what we can know, I'm agnostic. 
but I'm a moral atheist. That is, I think God is a bad idea. And so I've chosen mm. to jettison the idea of God. However, I'm starting to, with this current work that I'm doing, uh, move a bit away from that and start to increasingly embrace the notion of mesotheism. And mesotheism is exciting for me because it helps to articulate what uh, with atheism was just a kind of clunky term. I, I am a humanist. I'm a thoroughgoing humanist. And I'll keep that kind of nomenclature. But I, I'm, I don't think I'm an atheist. What I am is someone who hates God. Mm. Oh, break that down, man. Break that down. Come on. So uh, that's a, mesotheism, uh, similar uh, it, for folks who know the definition of uh, misogynist, Me, similar sort of meaning, uh, but with a different connotation that is, or, or a different inflection. It's signifying on God or theism. So what I'm starting to realize is that my uh, my relationship with God has endured my movement in and through the philosophy of religion and thinking about belief and disbelief and what does or doesn't exist. And I say that because I, I have come to realize that my relationship to God is one of intense disdain. Mm. But there's still one there. I am absolutely furious at what it what may or may not be there. Okay. And and I, I'm in the beginning process of uh, organizing my thoughts around this, uh, but I think it will at the very least help to uh, articulate, help to understand. Uh, a number of different things that have to be addressed in terms of the study of race and religion. What I mean is, for instance, uh, if I, if we um, if we talk about me in terms of who I represent socially, that is the white man, then I have a historic and historical. Uh, relationship to the black man that's based on antipathy and derision, right? So uh, there's a hatred that's operative there, white against black, that I want to take account of in my work, not because I am actively involved in that now. I, I, I don't think I am. However, it's incumbent upon us to take ownership of, of where we've been. And so what I'm trying to uh, address, uh, at least with this example, is the way that uh, hatred vis-a-vis -vis race might help us to understand uh, many white men's relationship to the idea of God as it has expressed itself through not only atheism, but atheism would be in a specific case of where this would express itself. This fury, this is like self-righteous white fury. Hmm. Hmm. And conversely, and here's where uh, my research might be perceived as a bit more wonky, uh, a dimension of 
This work also involves taking stock of the history of religions, uh, understanding of where where God comes from. Okay, come on. Where does God come from? Period. Like I mean that very literally. So it, from a theological standpoint, God is this otherworldly thing, or God is this kind of abstract metaphysical thing. Well, uh, from a history of religion standpoint, uh, we get to play in the, the space between uh, truth and fiction or myth and history or what have you. And if we track backwards, if we look at the mythical record against the historical record, against the archaeological record, et cetera, et cetera, we know where God comes from in terms yeah. of human expression. We know where God comes from, and it comes from Egypt. It, more specifically, to use loaded jargony language, it comes from Kemet. It comes from Africa. Mm. The notion of God is—I mean this very literally, although I mean to use, make use of the symbolic meanings associated with it, too. Like The notion of God is a black idea. Mm. Come on, it is, keep it going. It, it is, it has a, it has an ethnic origin, and that origin is black. And I could get into more specifics about that, but essentially, the notion of God is, in its first instantiation, organized in terms of the notion of Pharaoh. These things go together. Come on, soon enough, the the. The specific personhood of the idea of God, for some people, got detached or dislocated. And over the years, through various machinations of culture, the idea of God got disconnected from ethnicity. But the actual concrete history of that idea has an ethnic origin. So if we're talking about really wanting to understand what God is or who God is, then we have to look at the black man anyway. Mm. <laughs> All right. All and so, right. But now that, that brings me in this project back to the circular, or in a circular fashion, it brings me back to the point I made a, a few minutes ago, which is that historically the white man has hated God, or the, the white man has hated the black man. So if over here, the reality of the origin of the idea of God is expressed in the black man, and the white man has for a long time hated the idea of the black man, then what is it then that—like, uh, what is that relationship? That's what I'm trying to uh, make some sense of now. Man, I, well, I, I love this. And, and let me just say that. I mean, I would say, I mean, and I want you to continue on that. And I have a couple other follow up questions. But it, it's interesting that you bring this up, particularly around, you know, ethnicity and God. I mean, I, I've I've been saying this now for at least the last couple of years. It's like if God was truly realized, let's just look at it from a, just a racialized, racialized perspective. If God was realized as a black racialized person, I'd, I, I would imagine that if that were the case, like truly imagine, like let's say some paper, some at somewhere came back and we're like, we found God. This is who God is. God is a black person. I believe that most white people would leave Christianity create something else, create an image, you know, and I feel like the large part of the image of, of Christ 
has been racialized, you know, into a white person so that it can be more palatable and more adaptable in, in, in certain spaces. I mean, so it's interesting what you're bringing up here, especially in this in this in this era of white evangelicalism. But but please continue. I don't yeah, even know if that I, makes sense. I, I think uh, that's a that's a good example to uh, bolster the point you were just making. But I think it will also play out over these next decades that increasingly like you're, you you specifically are good to to jump off of that evangelical ship when you when you have because it's going to get more and more recalcitrant and the 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 object of god is going to become more and more white uh and i mean that in literal explicit ways it's going to turn back to kind of 19th century uh explicitly racialized uh tropes because the object here has always been social identity anyway whether we're talking about God or whether we, we're talking about uh, blackness or whiteness, uh, the, 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 the point of it all is social organization. Yeah. And the evangelicals are going to increasingly realize that this uh, notion of God that they have been operating according to is um, the, that is the abstracted metaphysical notion of God is increasingly inept to accomplish the tasks that they will want it to accomplish and because uh, it makes logical, it makes biblical, it makes historical, and it makes uh, anthropological. And some would say, I won't say this, but some would say it even makes physiological sense that the person of God would arrive in the form of a black man. Mm, okay. Now, some of this, it, well, none of this is is my own organic thinking. This, it, a lot of what I'm saying is coming it, from the uh, teachings of. Uh, I'm not spacing on the names. I'm trying to frame it uh, adequately. A lot of this comes by way of a, an offshoot of the Nation of Islam that has a, a, a critical mass of folks represented in hip-hop culture that are known as the Nation of Gods and Earth, so mm -hmm. more popularly known as the 5% Nation. Yes. And yes. so I want to give a shout-out to the gods because that's where this material is is starting from. It's, a, it's not where I, I hope to, to end it, but uh, a lot of this talk about the black man as God comes by to me by way of the five percent nation, which gets it from the nation of Islam, which through the teachings of the Honorable Elijah Muhammad uh, have come to think of God as black or Allah as black and Allah as uh, represented then ultimately as um, arm leg leg arm head as like the black man in the flesh. Well, let me let me, let me ask this, man. I mean, <laughs> because this is you've you've laid it on, man. You've you you've you've put it on, man. You and you got me you got me thinking in so many in so many um, areas. Um, I mean, I, I've I've got some of Hume's work pulled up here. Infidel and the Professor and Inquiry concerning human understanding. Blah blah blah. I mean, so I mean, there's that realm, but. In that sense, then, I mean, when you talk about, I want to go back to what you, you said, 
you are an atheist, but you're not an atheist. I mean, how would you, you know, do you do you have some reconciliation between that and humanism and that and some kind of spirituality? I mean, let me let me frame this in, in, a, in a different way. I mean, um, a large part of my own inquiry into God has been it's come through astrophysics and astronomy. Right. And so if we believe that, you know, okay, if the earth is really, you know, four or five billion years old, um, and the universe itself, at least the observable universe is 13.5, you know, or maybe 14 billion uh, years old, we can, you know, we can think that, okay, if there was a life form that's even conservatively 500 million, 200 million um, years old or ahead of us, you know, could God just be a higher, you know, alien species of of, of a form that has somehow left us and everything. I don't know. I, as I look at particularly scripture, you look at it in a different way, particularly once you take off the evangelical lens, there's a lot of support for um, astronomy and, 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 um, and particularly when it comes to quantum physics and, and whatnot. And so it's part of how I've come to reconcile some of those things and particularly, um, you, you know, looking at, okay, what does God look like in, in terms of, you know, spirituality and whatnot. And so I'm, I'm curious, you know, do you, how do you work through that? Do you not work through that at all, man? I mean, obviously, you know, for some people listening, they're like, wait, he's a religious scholar. So what, what does, what does that mean? You know? And so <laughs> I'd be curious, you know, if you wanted to get into, if you wanted to get into that a little bit, and then definitely I want to uh, talk about the, your latest book. Yeah. So, um, I imagine that listeners who are coming at they're listening from the standpoint of a religious uh, posture that is a, like a believer-based or institutionally organized uh, affiliation, and um, folks who are critical of religious belief who do uh, work in the study of religion, everyone might be a bit confused and a bit uh, wary at this talk of the black man as God. But remember— uh, I'm coming at this from the standpoint before a kind of what what might appear as a kind of naive uh, buying into uh, the posture of the nation of gods and earths. I the the bigger point is I don't trust white perspectives. Mm. All right, all right. And so, and so I I'm not so much interested to get these metaphysical questions right as much as I am interested, and increasingly so, interested to find ways of uh, healthy communication and ways of healthy negotiation of social life as we know it. Mm. Wow. And, and, and so I, I am very genuinely and sincerely not interested to uh, uh, answer and address pressing uh epistemological questions about where God comes from. I, I, I leave open the space of uh, unknowing and uncertainty, and I, I, I maintain this position in my work. I, I, I call myself an uncertain humanist, and I stand by that now. Uh, my humanism is, is capacious enough to uh, recognize the, the utility of the idea of God as a means of articulating human potential. Mm, come on. But at the same time, uh, it is uncertain enough 
of what we would traditionally call metaphysics that I, I try not to make any claims that would um, do suggest anything definitive in the way of uh, where God, where God with a capital G is. So I, I'm not a pantheist. I'm not a panentheist. I'm not any kind of uh, ist. I, what I what I'm trying to do is take seriously the possibility that white folks are not the ones to look to in, in regards to uh, the idea of God in general. And so, so as an alternative, and and the uh, as an alternative, I've made an a research commitment, but it's also for me an existential commitment. So like as an existentialist, the line between my scholarship and my life is, is really, really messy. Like I've made a commitment to myself that, and I can tell you, it was kind of a, I had a theophany. I had a religious experience as it were. And I had it at the Allah school in Mecca Mm. in Harlem at the, the, the sit, the home base for the five percenters. I was doing ethnographic work there one day, and and one of the gods uh, told me to to my to my face uh, very concretely that, look, you're welcome here, you're welcome here, but what you need to understand in order to be here is that you're in the presence of a god. Mm. Mm. And I said to myself, I mean, like, I'm comporting myself in ways that I think is like, safe and healthful or whatever, as far as like the ethnographic field is concerned. But what I'm saying to myself is like, or rather I'm a ball of like negative energy. I guess that whatever is like inside of me in that moment, the whatever's like the widest piece of me. And I mean that in a figurative kind of sense, not specifically to my skin color, but like what, whatever, there was a caustic response to him saying that I didn't want to believe it. Mm, wow. And, and it, I said to myself there that I'm about to embark on a journey that I couldn't have predicted when I was getting abused by the pastor's son. I couldn't have predicted when uh, my dad killed himself due to alcoholism. I couldn't have predicted it as, as, a, as a youngster, but I can understand it. My, like, my mandate now, my mandate that I gave myself then is that from here out until uh, until reason or, or uh, experience would dictate otherwise? I'm gonna under I'm gonna I'm gonna accept the that man's position. I'm going to do what I need to do in order to situate the black man as God. And so, in my research for the last two years, that's been my. Uh, organizing frame of reference. Wow. So, so for me, to answer the question that you're getting at, in posing to me, like to you've asked me to kind of outline where I stand in terms of the metaphysics over and against like the rhetorical or the communicative power of the idea of God is, I mean this very literally, the answer to that for me literally exists in the form of the black man in the flesh today. Mm. Mm. So I like, 
beyond that, I don't know. I, I, I teach my students different options and possibilities and stuff like that. I, did, I make a point to, to teach my students all of the traditional uh, ways of thinking about the idea of God. I, I, don't, I, I don't go into my classrooms and express this singular perspective uh, as definitive or anything like that. And I mean, it, it would take a, uh, a rare occasion for me to be talking about this uh, in my classroom at all. Uh, so for me, rap songs uh, serve as homilies. Break that, break that down, man. I like that. I like that. So uh, if, if we think about church as a space where um, people are edified in terms of being taught how to behave, but also um, how to feel about oneself, hip-hop is a space where it's okay to feel confident in yourself. The church has been, for me, a space where I was left to feel incredibly in, incomplete, incapacitated, and unable to um, have any confidence in myself at all. Hip-hop, on the other hand, talks about overcoming the world's obstacles. And does it do so in a way that's complicated and messy? Sure. But at least it's talking about its complicatedness and its messiness. <laughs> right, right. The church has uh, had a harder time, and it still has a harder time. As we see with the Catholic Church scandal, as well as Protestant scandals that are only not as big as the Catholic one because the, the Protestant churches are, are uh, disparate. But they're no less dirty. Man, oh, wow! There, there are so many things, man. You've, you've, you've touched on a lot here. This is, this is good. I mean, which is just proof that you know I got to get you back and and uh, and 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 have another conversation because there was stuff that I know we talked about a few years ago. Because I know you spent time out in Europe in parts of parts of Europe. No, yes, yeah. mm -hmm. and you did a lot of great work Germany. out there. Yeah, Germany, man. And so you talking about? I remember one time we were talking about the Greeks and how the black folk and white folk and this and you's breaking it down. I, I can't even repeat it, man. I mean, that's 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 a whole nother conversation. I would yeah, love to. That's, that's part of a, another research project that's trying to isolate the the acute origin of the idea of whiteness as a means of social organization. There you the, go. Contemporary uh, perspectives on that from scholars is that it's a fairly recent invention. And I, that project that I'm working on, although it's on a back burner right now, um, I'm wanting to suggest that there are some exceptions that take us all the way back to uh, the Greek world. Yeah. Okay, man, that, yes, that, that, okay, we, well, that's, that's going to be part two, because I want to get to your latest book, 
uh, that just came out uh, and uh, Method as Identity, of which you co-authored, uh, right? Correctly? With Monica, yes. right? Okay. Yes. So Method as Identity, Manufacturing Distance in the Academic Study of Religion, Religion uh, and Race. Uh, talk to me a little bit about uh, you know this book and everything. And for the listeners, um, again, I'll, I'm going to put be putting a lot of links in the show notes so you can go to whitehodgepodcast.com to check them out uh, along with this book. Uh, I have not gotten a copy, so I haven't had a chance to fully read this, and that's by no fault of Chris or Monica. Um, but that by the time we set this thing up, I just didn't I get a copy. But the copy is it's on its way. I just need to get it, and then I'm, I'm excited to get into this. But talk a little bit about it, man. And I know you've talked about some of the background of this, but you know what's what what is what is the book when you think about Methodist identity? What's what's that all about? Well, the book actually has its origin in our. Uh, session at the AAR, Critical Approaches to Hip-Hop and Religion. Oh. Monica and I put that together however long ago it's been. And the first uh, the first session that we hosted, we invited uh, critical theorist of religion, Russell McCutcheon, to uh, come and give <laughs> yeah. the response to it. And to make uh, the long story short, McCutcheon's response, we thought, was fantastic. It was critical. It was biting. It uh, didn't play favorites in terms of who it was critical of. And um, we thought it was fantastic. But then what we realized is that many members of the audience were uh, really frustrated and some were outright offended by uh, the occasion. And uh, what I mean is that the, uh, McCutcheon is a white guy. Hip-hop is perceived as this uh, uh, mostly black and brown occasion. And I, I think there's good reason to consider it that. But um, we were just confused. We had tried to fashion the, the session as something that kind of could like get beyond uh, a lot of those kind of political social and political like issues. I don't mean to stop thinking about them, but to essentially this book method as identity is a series of essays that we wrote together over the last few years that really answers a question we had of, of ourselves, which is what happened there. Mm. And it's the, the, the answer is that the critical position, the critical posture, uh, has a, a really ugly history, which is kind of boring and very similar to most histories of scholarship in that it's like overly racist and instrumentalized black bodies, female bodies, but especially black bodies. And it, that's, so that's the history of it. And we address that some in the book. But the more pressing thing is that the critical method relies on distance making, and it does so through the needed uh, mechanism of the idea of the primitive as uh, the means of creating that distance. And what we ultimately suggest is that the distance that's created by this critical method is in many cases, uh, it's useful it, it provides a kind of uh, hermeneutical distance from the object that you're studying long enough to, to find innovation and stuff like that, but it always comes at a cost. 
And mm. for the last 150 or so years, the cost has been paid by black bodies because white scholars have have turned to black bodies. This is again like touching on the, the curious relationship between the idea of God and the white preoccupation with black religion and black folks in general. But in, in any event, the in a philosophical and in an epistemological sense, scholars in the field of religion have relied on the notion of the primitive. And I don't mean that to, as a specific stereotype, although I mean to include that, but I mean it relied on the idea that there was something out there, some, something different than the scholar who could be marked as different and in most instances as less than. So I'm not what by saying the primitive, I mean it in a in a, a technical sense, not in the sense I'm not using the term to mark a particular type of person. But our, the manufacturing distance is the process where scholars of religion have historically, and we want to say continue in certain ways to do so today, primitivize. That is a Scholarship has not so much been about the exposure of new knowledge or the making of knowledge, but about the maintenance of a distinction between us and them. And mm. so that's what that's what the book is about. So it's it's geared towards scholars of religion to help in uh, maintaining a critical awareness and a hermeneutic of suspicion towards the objects that we study, while at the same time it tries to historicize uh, the, the costs of that critical posture. Hmm. Man, man. And if you order with the discount code Lex 30 off 19, you get 30% off the current price, but more, uh, uh, more seriously, although I'd love for you guys to purchase a copy, but if folks could ask their libraries, their institutional libraries, yes. to get a copy, that would be uh, very, very uh, helpful for uh, for us. No, man, exactly, exactly. And for those of you listening, I just want to reemphasize that that's a big thing. Um, I know I've tried to, you know, that's another little hustle <laughs> I try to do as well. Like, hey, institutional libraries, y'all spending some money over there. I know y'all got a budget to get stuff, you know, get get this get this works here, man. And and um, yes, that's that's important. I've also had some some friends of mine and former students of mine, you know, uh, help out in that as well. So those of you listening, uh, check this out. Um, let me ask just a real quick question. I know the time is 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 nigh, but this has been such a deep uh, and rich conversation. Uh, so method as identity, I definitely want to go back to that uh, a little bit of just about the McCutcheon. I mean, how did that shape this? And like, was there any, uh, or, or maybe you mentioned this and maybe, or maybe it cut out or whatever. I don't know, but how, what, what, what came of that as you were thinking? Cause I remember the vibe. In fact, that was, that was one of my first, uh, attending. I mean, that was when I was attending. I, I think that was my first time attending the, the critical approaches to hip hop and religion and, and whatnot. And so I wasn't aware of all the ins and outs and, and what, uh, you know, folks, you know, behind the scenes, I know there's always somebody behind the scenes saying, Oh yeah, you shouldn't do that. You shouldn't do that. But what, what came of that? I mean, how did that, you said this is a collection of essays. So I'm imagining these are things that came out as you, as both you and Monica were processing, you know, what that, what that looked like and what that meant and whatnot. Yes. And uh, so what came up 
what came of it, it was initially a, an essay that we presented the first version of at the uh, International Association for the History of Religions Conference it, that was held in 2015 in Erfurt, Germany, where we were going to criticize McCutcheon for his blind spots, while at the same time uh, maintaining uh, a version of the position, the theoretical posture that McCutcheon uh, made, uh, upholds. Okay. Uh, so this is not about uh, getting rid of the critical perspective as uh, as uh, used or as articulated by McCutcheon. It's about refining his efforts at historicizing. So he himself is interested in historicizing uh, the the object of religion and the stuff that we do uh, in the study of religion. But at that occasion in Erfurt, we ended up getting into a rather heated discussion with one of uh, McCutcheon's teachers, Donald Weeb, and I, I can only say that uh, that a break. As we organize it in the book, a break occurs, a split occurs within the critical, what we just generally or generically refer to as the critical camp. One is uh, a discursive turn that is, is like represented by McCutcheon. The other is the scientific or scientific, really positivist uh, position that's represented by someone like Donald Weeb. And the debate we got into with Weeb was on this very notion of the primitive. He wanted to suggest that it, it was useful. And we agreed that it had a certain kind of epistemological function, but that it came with certain costs. He, wanted, he said that those costs were worth uh, paying. And we said, well, that's an impossibility. That's, that's something that we can't go with you on. And that's what the debate was about, and it unfolded that way. And so the, the book is really, it, and it begins and ends with the story of the critical approaches session and the, the argument, the debate that we got in with Donald Weeb in Erfurt. But the, what we understood in all of that was that nobody had written a book that, had, that, that attempted to take stock of the complications involved in simply maintaining a critical posture. And by critical, I mean one that's skeptical of an abstracted reliance on uh, or on on reliance on an abstracted idea. The most classic of which is the idea of God. Like the critical folks want to say that uh, we can't believe the claims made by someone who's uh, saying that, well, God told me to, and as a result, uh, truth is this and that. A critical posture says, no, we can't, we can't believe that. We have to work against that. We can't do that in our scholarship. Well, that's true, but what of uh, race? What of other uh, floating signifiers? What, what of other categories of identification beyond the theistic? And so those are uh, topics that we address in the book, um, and we hope that it helps to foster uh, what I think is a much-needed conversation that hasn't—folks have tried to have it, but uh, 
it hasn't really gone very well, uh, I don't think. Mm. So, um, mm. yeah, we'll see what, what happens. But man, ask man. your libraries to buy it. Method as Identity. That's Manufacturing Distance in the Academic Study of Religion. That's what's up, man. That is what's up. And like I said, for those of you listening, I'll put all this in the show notes along with some extras that uh, Brother Dr. Driscoll has brought up. Um, thank you so much, man, for uh, for coming on today. This has been, like I said, a very rich uh, conversation that I know we're going to have to continue. Um, but for the listeners, man, where can folks find you, man? And uh, where can we find the book? Uh, we want to bring you out to our, uh, our school and, 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 and pay you, you know, these wonderful honorariums. Where, yeah. where, can, we come, where can we come get you? Well, I, I would welcome any invitation from you uh, anytime uh, to uh, sit down with you and build is a wonderful occasion. Uh, but folks can find me at shadesofwhite.org, which is my website, which is really just a blog now. Um, I don't need a whole website. I'm not that big of a deal. Um, but uh, also, my I'm on Twitter a little bit. Uh, and I'm on Instagram, all of which are uh, under Shades of White. So, like, shadesofwhite.org is the best way folks can find me. Okay, cool. And again, those of you listening, as always, I'll put these in uh, the show notes. You can reach out to Brother Chris uh, and have more deeper conversations and everything. Man, brother, thank you so much for taking the time and coming on today. This has been amazing. Thanks again for the invitation and thanks to your listeners for uh, uh, sticking with us. So appreciate it.